This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Live from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And good evening. It is, uh, what's day today, right? Thursday, Thursday, welcome. Uh, these days are starting to blur. There's so many things going on. Things are moving fast, yet some things are moving at a snail's pace, like the debt ceiling negotiations. Things don't seem to be happening there, but guess what? Six in 10 Americans now say that we should cut spending along with increasing the debt limit. That means... 60% of the Americans that were interviewed agree with Kevin McCarthy and the Republican Party. Go figure, huh? This is according to CNN of, of all sources. A majority of 60% of Americans say spending cuts should accompany a debt ceiling increase, according to CNN's poll. Uh, additionally, 24% said Congress should raise the debt ceiling no matter what, while 15% said lawmakers shouldn't raise it and allow the U.S. to default on their debt. That's a pretty big number, I think, 15%. I mean, not very competitive yet, but interesting. I thought it would be like three or four. Uh, talks between uh, McCarthy and the uh, president have stalled, as Republican negotiators say there is a significant gap between where we are and where they are. And that's a quote uh, from McCarthy and his uh, negotiators. Uh, an additional quote from Rep. Grab, uh, excuse me, take two, <laughs> Rep. Garrett Graves, a Republican from Louisiana. He said, unless and until the White House recognizes that this is a spending problem, then we're going to continue to have a significant gap. So uh, Graves is the top proxy for McCarthy in the negotiations. The White House has discussed reducing the deficit by closing tax loopholes and raising taxes on billionaires a suggestion rejected by Republicans. Now, uh, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said that default isn't an option and insisted that the talks have been productive. So that's where they are. But guess what? It's not just um, the White House and, and uh, Jean-Pierre. It's Biden and the entire squad, right? The squad is out there, and they're saying all sorts of things, right? Biden's out there beating the drum saying, you know, we have to make sure Social Security is available. Now, Everybody's going to get their Social Security. Now, whether it's a little late or not might be a different story if Biden continues to play this game. But because, again, McCarthy's put a deal in front of him that would protect all of that. It's Biden that's holding out. So if there is a delay because they haven't agreed to something, it, people aren't going to miss out on payments. But there might be a delay. 
Uh, and as far as I know, that may not even happen either. But let's just presume um, that that is, in fact, the case. Then wouldn't it be incumbent on the president of the United States where the buck stops here, right, to, to say, hey, look, I've got to do this. But instead, he's leaning on his minions in the squad and they're out there doing what they do best. Right now, uh, number four, this is uh, Representative AOC. She was on the floor today in the House saying that she can't think of the last time a person said in this country that the government does too much for them. Now, I can tell you, uh, I don't think the government does too much for me. I think the government does too much for many people, though. And we should probably stop doing that. And I've said that. And I think there's, I don't know, millions of people that listen to this program that would probably agree with that. Even the ones that disagree with me probably agree that we have too much government in our lives, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if anybody really agrees with her. I can't, I can't remember a, a time where somebody said, I wish the government would do more unless I was talking to somebody that was a Democrat or a socialist. But I want you to hear what AOC, all out crazy, my least favorite congresswoman from the Bronx and Queens, what she had to say uh, with respect to the government doing too much. Check this out. What we, this debt ceiling uh, debate really is about is the fact that they have run up a bill, Republicans have run up a bill that they now do not want to pay. They have run up this bill with extremely excessive military spending. They have run up this bill with extraordinary tax cuts for the wealthiest people in this country. And now when it comes down to time to pay for this bill, they, they do not want to pay it. And not only that, but they are accusing Democrats of saying we spend too much. For anyone that wants to entertain that thought, I ask you to think about the last time a person said, has said in this country that the government does too much for them, that their social security check was too high, that teachers are paid too much. When was the last time anyone has heard or seen that? Well, I can tell you, I invite you to New Jersey where they won't agree, but I know plenty of teachers. I'm not going to say they make too much, but they make a lot. I know many teachers that own a home in North Jersey. They own a home down the shore, a beach house. Um, that's a pretty common thing. I, I know many other people that don't have that uh, privilege, I'm going to call it. Right. I mean, that's just the, the way that is. Now, of course, AOC is using the, the, the height of, of, of rhetoric here to, to try and make a point. But uh, obviously nobody's going to say that <laughs> their, their Social Security check is too high. And by uh, increasing the debt ceiling, they're not going to say that, oh, my gosh, yes, now AOC made my check higher. They're not going to say that again either. So these are really false uh, equivalencies that, that she's arguing here. They make no sense. But it, they're platitudes, and they sound nice. It sounds nice, but it's empty rhetoric at, 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 at its core. And I just think it's it's so sad that to me, this is what she thinks of me. Right. This is what she thinks of you. This is what she thinks of, of us as Americans, that we, we need the government to do more for us and that the, the government, i.e. the Republicans, have run up a bill. How do you run up a bill with tax cuts? How do you do it? You don't. Right. If you're not paying more for tax, that doesn't mean that you're running up a bill. It just means you're not paying more for taxes. All right, so let's let's just presume her her math is right and that by lowering tax rates that you still have uh, less revenues, which you don't. It's never happened, right? Every time they've they've lowered tax rates, they've gotten more tax revenues. 
But let's just say that that was the case. Uh, it's never happened. So what is she talking about? The whole thing is fake, phony, and fraud. That's, that's all I can say. But she wasn't alone. Of course, Ayanna Presley jumps in, uh, her fellow member of the squad, saying uh, Republicans are continuing to govern in a way that is, get this, godless. Check this out. My colleagues across the aisle say that they care about seniors, veterans, children, and families. But in the words of James Baldwin, I can't believe what you say because I see what you do. The Republicans continue to govern in a way that is clueless, callous, and with great consent. And I would say godless because faith without works is dead. Unbelievable. So now she's quoting scripture that faith without works is dead. (laughs) <laughs> again, these are not theologians. These are not men of the cloth. But but again, I've never voted for a congressman or a president or anybody else to be my priest, to be my pastor. I voted for a president. I voted for a state representative, for a federal uh, um, lawmakers. The, the way they position these arguments, in my opinion, only fools those that want to get fooled. And I know most of us listening are very, very smart people. But we have to reach more people. Because somebody's believing this. Although six in 10 Americans don't believe it, there's still 40% of the country out there that's buying this stuff. And I'm not. And I know you're not either. Anyway, I want to talk about that. I want to continue uh, on that vein. I also want to talk about DeSantis. DeSantis brought in, in 24 hours, despite the glitches, the glitches that actually knocked us off the air uh, as well yesterday for a little bit, for a few minutes, uh, as I understand it, um, brought in $8 million in 24 hours. So we're going to talk with our buddy Adam Raziri. He's a chief marketing officer at Agency Partner to to discuss what that DeSantis rollout looked like. It seems successful uh, monetarily, financially. Um, just not so sure it was um, well thought out on the tech side. But either way, it seemed to, to, to be a very good launch for something that didn't have an actual press conference and there wasn't any televised component to it. That's my take. But we're going to get the other side of that story as well coming straight ahead. Plus your calls, 866 866- 505-4626, our legacy line, or the brand new number, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. With Rich Valdez. Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. Look, we know our country's going in the wrong direction. We see it with our eyes and we feel it in our bones. Our southern borders collapse. Drugs are pouring into the country. Our cities are being hollowed out by spiking crime. The federal government's making it harder for the average family to make ends meet and to attain and maintain a middle-class lifestyle. In our- All right, that, of course, is Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. His announcement on Twitter, on what they call Twitter spaces, which is the equivalent of like a party line back in the days where it's kind of like a conference call where everybody can just listen in, but nobody could see each other. And interesting that that would be the format that one picked. I guess some people say this was kind of a soft launch for him, that 
he was doing this because he's not really serious about contending for the nomination, but wants to get his name out there while others are saying uh, he's, he's the smartest guy in the room because he raised a million dollars in the first hour and another 7 million in the subsequent 23 hours for a total of $8 million in the 24 hours uh, following his launch on Twitter. But CNBC says that there were Twitter glitches that plagued the DeSantis uh, very much hyped presidential announcement that he did uh, in concert with Elon Musk on Twitter. And in that, there were. There were glitches. And, of course, you even saw some of those glitches uh, parlay over into our program yesterday. We were knocked off the air for about 10 minutes in the third hour of the program because a lot of people went through different things yesterday as Microsoft was warning that there was a Chinese uh, hack attack by a group called Volt Typhoon. Now, there's no uh, concrete proof that one thing is related to the other, but Microsoft servers are all over the place and things do get compromised in the midst of these attacks. So we don't know exactly what happened there, but if you missed any portion of this program, make sure you go to the website, richvaldezamericaatnight.com, and you can listen to any part of the show that you may have missed on demand anytime, absolutely free. richvaldezamericaatnight.com. Now, Adam Raziri, He's the chief marketing officer at Agency Partner Interactive, and he's been on with us before. And uh, this is kind of his forte, you know, digital communications and whatnot. So we're going to bring him in to figure out what happened. Was this a disastrous launch? Was it a complete success? Adam Raziri. Hey, Rich. Good evening. How are you? Really well. Thank you. Fantastic. So this is a great topic. Absolutely. Very timely, too. You know, I think what we witnessed was uh, a combination of a lot of things. You know, Twitter Spaces is really something that has been grabbing hold of a lot of Twitter users' attention now, uh, really since Elon Musk first purchased Twitter and and actually himself started joining Twitter Space conversations and allowing the average user to directly engage him and ask him questions. And I think when Governor DeSantis decided to, you know, utilize Twitter Spaces as a platform to announce his run for president, uh, he, he really was doing something that had never been done before, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I, I think what we kind of are seeing here, like I said, it's a few different things. One is Twitter is testing its ability to quickly scale uh, the bandwidth that's necessary to onboard a large group of people. You know, of course, we know uh, Tucker Carlson is going to be syndicating content live on Twitter. Uh, we know that the Daily, the Daily Wire personalities are going to be doing the same thing on Twitter as well. And, you know, Governor DeSantis brought in, you know, a quick zero to 700,000 people to his, his announcement. And that's pretty, pretty amazing. But of course, you know, in, in the grand scheme of big tech and, and, you know, the online space, Twitter has to be able to compete with a broadcast audience of several million, right? YouTube is capable of that. And of course, we know over at Fox, Tucker Carlson would pull in something like 3 million users, or sorry, 3 million viewers uh, at, mm-hmm. at night. So, you know, Elon Musk is kind of describing this as a successful test, but obviously a test that also exposes vulnerabilities in the, in the scalability of the platform from a hosting perspective. But, you know, you mentioned China and, you know, potential attacks. And I think that was a great footnote because, you know, I have to I have to also indicate that Amazon is the company that hosts uh, Twitter's tweets and Twitter's mm-hmm. data. And, you know, I, I think it would be ridiculous to not actually at least investigate uh, what exactly happened on the hosting side of the operation, because we know historically Amazon has been a company that has worked in cahoots with big tech being Google, Apple, and pre-Elon Twitter to, to quite literally destabilize and, and, and deplatform uh, those who try to perpetuate free speech, being 
you know, the, the parlor app once upon a time was number sure. one in the app store one week and the next week they were literally kicked out of Google play and they were kicked out of the Apple store. And then Amazon was like, you know what, by the way, we're not going to host your, your, uh, your data either. So, you know, goodbye. So, you know, I think, I think it's worth looking into Amazon um, as a potential suspect for the technical difficulty, difficulties that Twitter experienced during that, that spaces event. But that being said, you, you mentioned something really important. Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. literally he raised, Eight million dollars within 24 hours. He he raised a, a full million dollars within the first hour of this actual event. And when you think about any sort of campaign-focused event, um, there's always a specific strategic goal attached to that event. And if one Twitter Spaces event happened to attract the attention of 700,000 people, and he was able to raise eight million dollars for his campaign that quickly, I mean, how can you define that as anything other than a success? Of course. You're never going to read about any of that or hear about any of that from the mainstream media, right? Because Twitter right right now as a platform is innovative, and it is actually one of the biggest threats to the mainstream media establishment. You know, we've already seen Fox take a huge hit when they made that crazy decision to fire Tucker. Um, And then, you you know, we already already know that the ratings amongst, you know, CNN and MSNBC – and really, just all of those those big media companies, their ratings have been plummeting. And so now as pundits and influencers start to look at Twitter as a more mainstream platform to syndicate content, it's really going to change how broadcast really takes place. It's going to make things a lot more digital, a lot more real-time, and, and a little bit less scheduled. And certainly, it's destabilizing the power structure as well. And for anyone who's you know a part of that power structure, a part of that elite group of people – they're going to be really unhappy about that. So, you know, I think Governor DeSantis, you know, I think it was an innovative move and and kind of a a cool decision that his team made to give, you know, Elon Musk and Twitter a a chance. Um, But also, too, it was just one platform out of many others that they utilized to announce, you know, his run for presidency. Uh, Compare that also with Tim Scott, right? Tim Scott, he's a good guy. He describes himself as a happy warrior. Uh, but you know he did things a little bit more old school. He had like 300 people in attendance uh, for it for an in-person town hall type of event, and you know 300 people versus 700,000 people uh, for a presidential announcement or a campaign announcement. You know that's a pretty big difference, right? I, I think we've all sort of been sitting back knowing that Donald Trump has been you know campaigning for president since he was, I would say, unfairly uh, dethroned of what could have been or maybe should have mm-hmm. been arguably a win for him. Uh, so, you know, his, you know, Trump's announcement was no surprise to anybody. Um, I think we've kind of been waiting for DeSantis to make the formal announcement, knowing that, you know, based on his schedule over the, ca- the past couple of months, um, this was kind of, we, we saw it coming down the pipeline, right? So the Twitter event happened. There were technical issues there. I think those are forgivable and mostly detrimental to, t- to Twitter's brand in general. But that comes with the footnote that Elon Musk is an innovator and sometimes sometimes to make things great, you have to break them first. So, you know, I, mm-hmm. I think it'd be wrong to hold anybody to the fire and say, hey, that was a terrible decision. I think it was a risky decision that I think, frankly, was a good one that will produce fruit long term. I have another follow up question for you. We're going to get right back to you right after this pause. Uh, folks, we're on with Adam Raziri. He's the chief marketing officer at Agency Partner Interactive. And um, we're going to continue to pull on this thread because I think it's a, an interesting case to look at. Don't go anywhere. It's Rich Valdez, America at Night, our guest, Adam Raziri, and we're coming right back.
This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults, with zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Named one of the best personal finance podcasts, The Stacking Benjamin Show with Joe and his friends makes financial literacy fun. I got an email today from the LenPenzo.com HR department. I find oh. it really interesting. I'm an employee of one at this company, so but somebody from the HR department sent me an email telling me that I had a raise. If I just opened the attachment, I could see how much my raise was. Make sure you click on the links that are in there, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait. This is I'm excited. Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen. America, welcome back. Again, our phone number, 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-482-5337. Our guest, Adam Raziri, CMO, Chief Marketing Officer at Agency Partner Interactive. And we left off uh, with uh, some really good commentary from you, Adam. I wanted to follow up with you. And uh, and I don't know the answer to this. I don't even know what opinion I have of it yet. But I think part of me wants to say, you know, DeSantis is young. And obviously being young is a big plus in this race where people are going at Biden saying he's too old and Trump's only a couple of years younger and blah, blah, blah. And of course, I don't think it's a fair comparison ever to compare uh, Biden to Trump on many levels. I mean, I think Trump can run circles around Biden. But I think it's still smart for DeSantis to say, you know what, Um, I am the younger guy in this race. And as a young guy, I'm going to reach out to younger people and I'm going to do it the way young guys do it. We're going to do it digitally. And uh, and it seems to have paid off. And again, I'm on Twitter. I know we you know, we take uh, comments from from people on Twitter. And I can tell you some of our listeners who some are older, they're on Twitter and they send me, you know, comments and things. And some of the younger ones are on Twitter. So I just think it's it's interesting uh, to see how that played out. Uh, What's your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, like you said, I mean, age is fairly relative, right? And you think about someone like Chuck Grassley, right? U.S. Senator yeah, from uh, Iowa. He's 89 years old, and the guy runs like six miles a day every morning. And then you think about... Right, extremely sharp. Joe Biden. Yeah, extremely sharp. And you think about Joe Biden, considerably younger, you know, obviously, relatively speaking, but acts and, and projects himself as much, much older some would say older than 100, right? Donald yeah, Trump well, he's is definitely just foggy. Person. Like he, he seems very lost foggy. all the time. That's exactly right. And for anyone that's had a relative that has suffered through, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, I went through issues that, that impact older citizens. That's right. And I, and, I, and I had a grandfather who I watched suffer with Alzheimer's in the last years of his life. And he was a patriot. He served our country for, for quite a long time. And it, yeah, it was a very, very hard decline to, to witness, right? And, and I think you, you kind of see some similarities there in the way Joe Biden projects himself. And, you know, God bless him. You want the best for him health wise. But the guy does just not he does not seem to be there. And that's that's really unfortunate. He's 80 years old. Um, but but he seems to be a lot older than certainly Chuck Grassley, who's who's six years older Then you have Donald Trump at 76. But he acts like a 50 year old and he's got more energy than, you know, some 40 year olds. Right. The guy is a workaholic. Mm-hmm. He starts working early, early in the morning. He'll be working at 5 a.m. And. He's got calls out to people by seven. And so he's someone who will keep on your toes. And, you know, you talk about social media. I mean, Donald Trump as a, as a person, despite being 76 years old, 
you know, the guy had uh, more followers on social media than the U.S. population at one point before he was banned by all of big tech. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think I think Ron DeSantis, he is a truly younger guy and, and arguably kind of the next the next generation of GOP leadership. Uh, he truly is a younger guy. I think he's actually playing catch up with the older guy here being Donald Trump. Um, he has to be a, a force to, to reckon with on social media because Donald Trump is such a strong figure in the public light, right? So he's, mm-hmm. he's making a good decision by utilizing Twitter as a platform to announce his presidency or his run for presidency. Um, and, 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 and frankly, though, he's playing catch up, right? Uh, but that being said, there's a long way to go between now and the election. And when you think about who is running for this, the, the, you know, the most important office in our government, uh, I think DeSantis, the fact that he's already got a $110 million war chest behind him, you know, just from his, gov- his, his gubernatorial campaign, now adding $8 million to that from that Twitter Spaces event, he really is the most obvious and, frankly, the strongest contender against Donald Trump. I see everybody else who's running for president really as someone who's either going for a cabinet position or a VP spot long term. You know, and just that's trying not to launch a book later or just something. <laughs> exactly right. Something other than president. Any of those candidates, right? They're all good people for yeah. the most part. And they have all done great things for the country. But when you talk about viability as a candidate – Donald Trump and, and Ron DeSantis truly are the strongest ones, and money is a big part of it, and so is influence online. And like you said, you know, I think he's making a smart decision here, utilizing Twitter as a platform to launch that, that, that race for the presidency. Uh, it's a big yeah. deal, and he has to be able to connect with those who are, who are present online. The question mm-hmm. is, is you know, who can really mobilize the, the people that have been loyal to Trump for a long time? Because DeSantis, if he's not able to connect with your traditional Trump voter – there's no way he gets past the primary. Um, but similarly, if right. both of those candidates, whoever catch, captures the one spot on the GOP ticket, if they're unable to, to connect with the younger demographic, the ones who actually show up to vote, uh, then, then they're not going to actually win the, president, the presidency itself. So, you know, uh, catalyzing people to actually take action on, you know, sort of the campaign directives is, is a really big challenge for a lot of political candidates. But social media is a great tool to actually engage people and get them to, to really start working on your behalf, uh, either as a cheerleader or as an advocate. Mm-hmm. So DeSantis on Twitter, that's a great start. The question is, are we going to see Donald Trump on Twitter, right? Because <laughs> from a business perspective, not a great thing for true social. You will have to find some sort of way to kind of reconcile that between the businessman Donald Trump who owns true social and the, the candidate, Donald Trump, who needs to be present on Twitter as a platform. You know, I, I think it, it, all of that being said, um, it, it, I think you could go both ways on all of these things, right? I think there's people, uh, you're right. When you say, you know, Donald Trump is a monster on Twitter until he wasn't. And, and then he said, all right, I'll open my own. <laughs> and he's got his own thing going. <laughs> and, and he's doing well there. And it's, it's an, a viable, actual entity. And he uh, he is back on Instagram and Facebook putting out campaign uh, content, but mainly it's it's Truth Social where everything's driven. And, and I right. think to myself, you know, your comment, I think, is, is spot on that DeSantis is playing catch up because I, I really think social media is is Donald Trump's game. Like, that's his forte. He's been doing this since he was cracking on Obama. Right. Saying, you know, you were born in, uh, <laughs> right. you know, in, in, uh, in Kenya. So I, I think it, it's, it's a lot of catch up there and it, there's personality as well. DeSantis is a great fighter and, and, and Trump is a great fighter, but he's also great at ridiculing. And I think that's that's, that's right. 
that's fantastic for him. Right? This is kind of what he does. Well, Little Rocket Man, uh, you know, <laughs> Lying Ted, uh, you, you name it. He's had so many nicknames that stick like glue. Um, right. I don't know that the ones he's given to DeSantis have st- stuck yet. But I, my, my, my thinking here is... Right? <laughs> right, the uh, uh, But I, I think that, that Trump um, is Trump. And my, my thought is... I, I think the, I'd like DeSantis, right? If Trump wasn't running, I, I think DeSantis is a is a, a an excellent option. The Certainly. the um, I think the the issue here becomes for a lot of people. Uh, I think they feel like Trump needs more time to finish something that he started. He was wrong. There's a part of you know writing a wrong and voting for Trump. How much of do you think uh, of that? is going to matter. Looking at the Harvard-Harris, I think he's up 30% on that one. Uh, then right. there was the other one from, um, I'm forgetting who it's from. I think it was the ABC one. And um, it was, he's up 13 on that one. So, I mean, Trump is, is up plenty. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens right. in a couple of weeks. But well, it's, um, they've been including DeSantis in these polls. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of Americans that are extremely angry at the, at the institutions that are supposed to really hold the values of our Constitution intact. You know, when you consider that you have nonviolent J6ers who are held in the D.C. gulag yet, you know, for over a year, and then you, you have people who have literally shot people in schools and committed violent crimes that are released on bail, you know, within 24 hours of the actual event taking place, there, there are some very obvious injustices that we can point to in our system, and people are really angry about that as we see crime rates skyrocketing across the country, and really a, a border that, frankly, Ron DeSantis pointed at as you know, extremely insecure and totally inadequately uh, defended. So, you know, I think a lot of people are very angry about where our country has gone since Joe Biden took office, and they really want to see a sort of bull in a china shop sort of presence like Donald Trump come in there and slash and burn some of these institutions that need some serious change from the inside out. But that being Amen. said, you know, Trump only gets four years with his next term, and maybe that's maybe that's not the worst thing either, right? Maybe we need a, a change agent like that who's not afraid about not being elected again after, you know, four more years in office, right? And if that's I think able that's to one of the most attractive office, things he's got. He says, exactly this is it. Right. I'm going for the gold. I'm going for the gusto. I think it's, it's, it's pretty easy to say a perfect scenario for conservatives is four more years of Trump and then eight years of, uh, eight years of DeSantis after Trump. I don't know how, yeah. how realistic that is, but I think that's a perfect scenario. You have a guy who comes in, slashes and burn, and then a guy as smart as DeSantis comes in you know, afterwards to help kind of reinforce um, really growth in the right direction, ensuring that the yeah, Constitution is upheld. They keep on fighting. That's right. You know, so so I, I think there are some real things to be said for that. But really, when it comes to the social media war and elections in general, you know, these, these guys have to appeal to, you know, people that are libertarians, to centrists, and then even to those more conservative or you might call them moderate liberals. You know, they have to be able to get votes from those who actually voted for Joe Biden in the previous election. Elon Musk is one of those guys. And you have to be able to sway them because those people are also really, really unhappy about where our country has gone. And so, you know, the person who's able to really utilize the online space to campaign based on, you know, what their plan is for things moving forward, uh, sticking to the issues and and really not focusing too much on personal attacks. You know, I think that's who's going to win the general election. But you know what? I know we have to get past the primary first. Right. And so maybe Mm -hmm. Trump is doing the right thing right now by attacking DeSantis because, you know, we've all seen the ads already kind of running uh, from 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 the MAGA groups kind of you know, ridiculing DeSantis for some of the things he did as a congressman and some of the things he's done as governor and some of the things he said. Um, you know, the primaries are really ugly. I mean, once upon a time, Kamala Harris was in the primary against Joe Biden. And she People called Joe Biden a racist. racist. 
Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. And, and, sure and now they're besties. And then fast forward to the, yeah, fast forward to the, we did it, Joe, we did it call, you know? <laughs> I love that. And, love and, that. And, and now we just can't, you know, we can't escape the sad reality that Kamala Harris was chosen as VP to ensure that Joe Biden oh, geez. Uh, wouldn't have the 25th Amendment invoked on him because she's that bad. I'd like VP. her if she actually invoked that amendment. Riz, hang on for a second. We're going to come <laughs> right back with Adam Brazieri. Our phone number is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And just imagine that. Imagine if it's Kamala that would run instead of Joe. Man, I, I, I would just, I really look forward to that election. Anyway, don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. Is America at Night with Rich Valdez? Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. I want to listen to you, Rich, all the time. America at Night with Rich Valdez. Back, we're on with Adam Raziri. Uh, he's the CMO at Agency Partner Interactive. Now, Adam Riz, we're going to wrap up in this segment, but I wanted to get your final thoughts on where we go from here with respect to um, uh, DeSantis, DeSantis v. Trump, and the rest of 2024 from your um, perspective as a marketer? Yeah, so from my perspective as a marketer, I think where we go from here is, you know, I think just to set expectations, we're probably going to continue to see President Trump be President Trump. He's a big personality. Uh, he's a fearless, bold figure to, to reckon with. And anyone who's going to try and go against Donald Trump for that number one spot in our government, you know, they will have to prove themselves as having – you know, skin as thick as leather, being extremely smart and able to navigate extremely targeted conversations. Uh, I think we're going to see a lot of personal attacks come from President Trump, and we're going to see a lot of uh, messaging that comes from DeSantis that's extremely on point with the policies that uh, concern the country. Um, he has to focus on the things that concern most conservatives to begin with, just in order to win the primary. That's going to be obviously the first hurdle that he has to be able to, to jump. So, you know, I think we should be excited to see how these two extremely smart patriots uh, come, you know, toe to toe against each other, um, certainly in the debates that lead up to the primary. You know, a nice contrast between, you know, our side of the fence and the, and the, and the lefties is that we actually try to debate things and expose the issues sure. for what they are, and expose the personalities for who they are. And, uh, you know, we allow the public to see that, you know, in a very transparent way. You're going to see the left really do a whole lot of nothing. They're just, you know, we're going to see Joe Biden hide in the basement as, you know, Gavin Newsom tries to, to weasel his way into the White House. We'll see what, you know, what happens there. Um, yeah. I'm excited to see what the DeSantis campaign does, though, because they are very savvy individuals. DeSantis has a very, you know, a very capable and smart communications team. Uh, they've been able to go toe to toe with the mainstream media with, I would say, as much skill as a Carrie Lake or a Kaylee McEnany. Um, and so I think that's that's a very impressive quality to have in any candidate. Uh, DeSantis literally has presidential, uh, I would say presidential capable uh, people on his team, and that's a great asset for him to, to go to, to bat with. Uh, you consider some of the other candidates that are out there. They're extremely smart, you know, very well-intended individuals, Vivek Ramaswamy, Tim Scott, Nikki Haley. Uh, but they don't have nearly the the firepower that uh, 
you know, obviously uh, military veteran uh, and Governor Ron DeSantis brings to the table and obviously what President Trump has, you know, in his right pocket. So it's going to be a very, I think, unfortunately, I have to say, it's going to be a pretty ugly battle online. We're going to see a lot of messaging that really probably most conservatives are not that thrilled with because the bottom line is, is we like both of these guys. Both yeah. of these guys are guys that we would be happy to see as president of the United States because we trust them to go in and to basically destabilize and, and right, uh, in right face a system that has really taken advantage of us to allow uh, you know, leftist politicians to, to pad their pockets and to uh, you know, really uh, kind of take care of their friends. And, and also, too, obviously channel tons of money to Ukraine and to create ridiculous partnerships with China and with other rogue nation states that are really not our friends. So you know, at the end of the day, we're going to see kind of an ugly dogfight leading up to the primary. But after that, uh, I think we're going to see both of these strong-willed, you know, red-blooded Americans come together to utilize social media as a force to uh, ensure that, you know, we get the right person in the White House in the next go-round. Uh, I really hope that these two candidates utilize online media to expose some of the injustices and some of the vulnerabilities mm-hmm. around the election system. Because if we don't have an intact, uh, you know, election system, then we're all screwed, right? Like, like election integrity is extremely important. Uh, I think that at the end of the day, we all probably agree with most everything that we're going to hear from Donald Trump and most of the things that we're going to hear from Ron DeSantis as well. Right. Uh, now, Adam, again, let everybody know term, right? uh, quickly before sure. we run out of uh, time in the segment, uh, let everybody know how they can uh, f- find out what type of work you're doing. I know you help yeah. uh, small businesses and different types of businesses with their marketing needs. Let everybody know how they could uh, find you. That's right. So, uh, you know, if you could find me on LinkedIn, you can find me on Twitter at the Adam Riz. And uh, if you're looking to start a, a business online for, you know, basically for zero dollars plus your state fees, check out businessformation.io. And if you're looking for some excellent online marketing, check out agencypartner.com. That's a digital agency that I co-founded actually with my brother. So, um, you know, please do feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. Reach out to me on LinkedIn. You'll find me there as initial S, Adam Raziri. And uh, you know what? my, My profile is not incomplete without the American flag in my background. Outstanding. All right, folks, that's Adam Raziri from Agency Partner. Adam, thanks for being here. Godspeed to you. And straight ahead, we continue with your calls and more, so don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. 833-482-5337. Let's go to Travis calling from Fargo, North Dakota. Uh, is that WDAY or WZFG? What, what are you listening to? Uh, WDAY. You got that right. All right, fantastic. And uh, what's on your mind tonight, Travis? Um, well, I thought, great show so far. and uh, one I loved the... Um, kind of the uh, idea of putting that out there between DeSantis and Trump. Um, my thing, uh, from what I hear from much of the Midwest that I work with, with farmers and uh, ranchers, really is uh, that old school saying, you uh, you uh, dance with the one that brung you. And mm-hmm. uh, I think Trump is that person, and he kind of paves the way. So, you know, kind of looking that up and, and understanding for some of the folks out there, what that really means is uh, be considerate, loyal to the one who has been supportive 
attentive and helpful to you. And I would think that most people would agree that Trump has been that person. So, yeah. um, you know, it's, it, I know we see that both uh, Trump and DeSantis could bring a lot to the table. I think at the end of the day, people have to ask themselves, which one brought you to this dance? Yeah, I hear you. You know, uh, I heard a lot of similar. I worked on George W. Bush's reelection campaign in 2004, and I remember hearing those same sentiments. Everybody's saying, look, I don't necessarily like Bush, but he's gotten us here. We're in the middle of this conflict in Iraq. We've got so many things going. He he got us the Bush tax cuts, blah, blah, blah. You know, good or bad, I think we should, you know, let him finish the job he started before we switch gears to John Kerry. And uh, I'm thankful that they did. I didn't like a lot of things that uh, Bush did, but I think I would have really disliked a whole lot of John Kerry's policies. Travis, thanks for the call. I appreciate you listening. Big shout out to everybody in Fargo, North Dakota, WDAY in the building. We're coming back. We're going to continue the conversation with you all. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening wherever you listen. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, your liberty-loving Latino amigo. And our phone number is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. If you want to join this late-night national town hall forum, I welcome you to do so. A couple of quick headlines here. The United States Army Special Ops may be cutting 10% uh, because the military is looking... uh, at doing more conventional warfare, so they're thinking of cutting special ops by 10%. Excellent idea, not. Uh, Of course, this comes on the heels of uh, finding out that we were being hacked yesterday. The United States uh, critical infrastructure was hacked by a group called Volt Typhoon, and it's unsure if this is what caused the glitches on the bandwidth issues with Governor DeSantis's uh, launch, and as well as with us getting knocked off the air in the third hour of this program. 
Uh, but I remain suspicious about that. I really do. And there's a clip of audio that I want to play for you that I think you might remember. Listen to this. There's a time and place for that. But the reason people are so upset on social media right now is not because the Marine on the battlefield let someone down. That service member has always rose to the occasion and done extraordinary things. People are upset because their senior leaders let them down and none of them are raising their hands and accepting accountability or saying, we messed this up. If an 05 battalion commander has uh, the simplest live fire incident EO complaint, boom, fired. But we have a secretary of defense that testified to Congress in May that the Afghan National Security Force could withstand the Taliban advance. We have chairmen of Joint Chief, who the commandant is a member of that, who's supposed to advise on military policy. We have a Marine combatant commander. All of these people are supposed to advise. And I'm not saying we've got to be in, the, in Afghanistan forever, but I am saying, did any of you throw your rank on the table and say, hey, it's a bad idea to evacuate Bagram Airfield, the strategic air barriers, before we evacuate everyone? Did anyone do that? And when you didn't think to do that, did anyone raise their hand and say, we completely messed this up? I've got battalion commander friends right now that are posting similar things, and they're saying, you know, wondering if it, all the lives were lost and, and if it was in vain, all those, all those people that we've lost over the last know, 20 years. All right, if you'd remember when that happened, that was a YouTube video that went viral by um, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller Jr., who criticized uh, the commandant, criticized generals, and then got into a world of hurt over it uh, afterwards, going through a very uh, protracted legal battle with the Marine Corps. And uh, I remember that because I'd spoken with his parents at the time. And here we are in, uh, with, with that in the rearview mirror, and we've got Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller with us tonight. Welcome, sir. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me on the show. It's my pleasure. Now, I want to remind the audience that, um, of course, we are um, Memorial Day is upon us, and we, we were, we've been discussing a lot of military stories. But your story was very interesting because you were like the sole voice saying what I was thinking, which was I was like, if I were in the Army, I think I'd be yelling at somebody saying, why are you just not, like, protesting this? What's going on? How much, sir, yes, sir, can you do when, when you're faced with really bad decisions? And it's not just in the military that we saw this. I mean, we've seen it in, in the FBI, and there's been whistleblowers there. And it, we're seeing uh, bad behavior become normalized in so many American institutions. And I know that you, you have a, a, a very uh, interesting story, so I, I want to take our time with it. And... Uh, let's start with how you ended up in the military. Yeah, I just, I, I was an athlete. I played college soccer. I always was on a team. My military service was never something that was an aspiration of mine. My grandfather had served in World War II, but I didn't really have any family in the military. And I actually got an accounting degree because I thought I was going to go into the FBI. My grandfather had also served in the FBI. A lot of FBI agents have CPA backgrounds because you follow the money. You can mm -hmm. uncover a lot. But as I graduated and I was working as an accountant, I realized that I didn't like that. And the war was going on. I was watching Marines move through the city of Fallujah. And I thought, you know, I'll just go do one tour, go, you know, the edge of the empire and make a difference. And so I signed up and, and was in officer boot camp in January of 2005. And your experience in the military, would you, would you say it was a, an amazing and gratifying one, or was it one that you found contemptuous from the beginning? 
Well, any large bureaucracy has a lot of things that are frustrating. Anyone that's ever had a job knows that to be true. And the government, it can be even worse because at least in the corporate world, the dollar bill kind of drives accountability in a certain sense. If you're a CEO and your company's bottom line is going down, you're not going to have that job much longer. But in government organizations, you can have this massive waste and inefficiencies and at the top levels, uh, they're just, they're not functioning in terms of accountability that the way that they should. And what was it that brought you to this moment where you um, decided to, to make this video? Yeah. So I'm not a, a moral crusader. Like I just said, I mean, I didn't get to where I was at sitting battalion commander by saying whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. Right. And mm-hmm. so, you know, when you're young, you see all these things that don't make sense and you just assume that somebody else out there has a larger perspective and that you must just be ignorant to the process. So it was as I you know, deployed to Iraq, to Afghanistan, all these experiences, you see things. Um, then I later, I read, I study, I got a master's uh, in military science studying foreign diplomacy. And I just got to a point where I realized that there wasn't something I didn't understand. It, I understood exactly how the process worked. I understood everything about it. And I was frustrated. And I also was smart enough to know that at that point, we were going to just avoid the hard conversation, stick our heads down and try to just keep moving forward. And I didn't think that that was in the best interest of the military long term. A lot of the professional publications have been hijacked by the same people in control in these positions, and it lacked transparency. And so really social media became my one outlet to have an unvarnished truth. And the reason it resonated with you and so many other people is because I was saying what everyone knew to be true. I don't mm-hmm. think any, you know, I was charged with a lot of things. You know, did I violate the social media policy? Yes. Was I conduct unbecoming an officer? Yes. Did I ever get charged with a false official statement? No. You know, I don't think anyone ever thought that what no, I they said call was you a liar. True. Right. It was the manner in which I did it that everyone had a problem with. And it was just, it was a very uncomfortable conversation. And when I was immediately fired after that first video from the soundbite you played, it just became this thing where they weren't going to address the content and they just wanted to silence me by holding my retirement and the things, the levers of control that they still had. And I just believed so passionately in, in what I had said and I just wasn't going to back down. And it became a, an escalating situation between, between myself and the Marine Corps. Now, uh, and in as much as you're able to, to discuss that, uh, I, I remember it was a big legal thing. They, they, was, uh, they wanted to do a court-martial. Uh, there was a resignation. How did that eventually play out? So in the military, there's usually an investigation. And so mm-hmm. since I was a lieutenant colonel, the investigation had to be done by a colonel. That's how the process usually works. Well, they fired me immediately, which I thought that they would bench me and do an investigation and then fire me. They didn't, and that was mm-hmm. fine. But once I, I continued making statements, the investigation couldn't keep up. And so I wasn't technically pending any legal action. And so they, they were in uncharted territory. They eventually, I just said, I'm going to resign. And so like, this is a parallel process. I'm trying to resign and get out of the Marine Corps. They want their pound of flesh to hold me accountable because it was such a national news story at oh, the yeah. time. And so they couldn't, in their eyes, let me just exit. And at the same time, I just kept making statements. So they eventually put me under a gag order And the gag order was just, I mean, it was out of control. It was like, you can't even talk to someone else. Then they say that you said it and you'll go to jail. I mean, it was, 
it was like right field. So, you know, part of me wanted to, mm-hmm. to challenge them on that because I feel like it was unfair. And there was, you know, a struggle in the PR world where the Marine Corps was releasing statements about my mental health, which, you know, so I'm oh, having to fight that. Yeah, so I'm, I'm trying to fight on all fronts, and that's where uh, the war is being fought in a lot of ways. It's in the minds of people and yep. social media and, and, you know, different shows and outlets can shape beliefs of people. So the Marine Corps is doing their hardest to fight that war in the, in the news. They released my medical records to, like, a – um, a publication called task and purpose. It was, it was out of control. So yeah, long way of saying, I mean, I did break some rules. I was upset and very emotional at times, uh, but I didn't want to back down. And ultimately they put me in jail for violating the gag order, making another post. And then they offered me a legal, yeah, they offered me a legal deal while I was in jail and I could have, I could have denied it and stayed in jail for another six months and gone and fought at a general court martial. But at that point, I just wanted to get out of the Marine Corps. I, I did believe that I had broke some rules. Like I, I knowingly violated the social media policy. And uh, so I, I ended up parting ways with the Marine Corps on Christmas Eve of uh, 2021. Amazing. Amazing that for calling out the commanders for not doing their job, you ended up getting locked up. I, I remember I, I, it, was a, it was very um, shocking to me. And I remember the whole thing, and your parents were excellent advocates of that. And I think all of America remembers that. And it led to you continuing to tell your story in, a, in your new book, uh, Crisis of Command, How We Lost Trust and Confidence in America's Generals and Politicians. And straight ahead, when we come back, I want you to tell the audience a little bit about, you know, don't give it all away. Obviously, you gotta, they got to buy the book. <laughs> but uh, I want you to give them an idea of you know how we actually got on this path where things that the bureaucrats were were saying was more important than what the people on the ground were saying and how we started doing the wrong thing as opposed to doing the right thing. So, folks, we're on with uh, uh, former Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, United States Marine Corps. Crisis of Command is his brand new book, How We Lost Trust and Confidence in America's Generals and Politicians. I definitely recommend you uh, taking a look at it and sticking around. And of course, if you have a question or comment, the phone number is 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller um, as um, Memorial Day is, is upon us. And he's the author of Crisis in Command. You can also check out his website, AuthenticAmericans.com. And uh, the book is, uh, I think, so telling in, in its title. Crisis of Command, How We Lost Trust and Confidence in America's Generals and Politicians. And uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, tell us a little bit about how you feel we got to this point. Because we didn't just wake up in a bad place. It took a while to get there. What say you? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the biggest problem facing the military right now is the promotion system and the officer corps. So right now, if I'm a boss and I have five subordinates, I rank them one through five. 
based on what it should be is their ability. So if, if I'm an infantry officer, I should be ranking them one through five based on who's the best infantry officers. F-16 pilot, it should be one through five based on who's the best pilot. But what it turns into is the boss says, hey, you were late to the meeting. You always talk back. So I'm going to rank you three of five. And what a career officer over 40 years, that's how long it takes to make a four-star general. What they figure out is they don't have to be the best at their job. They just have to be the best at getting their boss to like them. And that creates a very different type of person than the type of person we need to stand up in tough moments. So in Benghazi, when General Carter Hamm had 10 military options available to save Americans that he was watching on TV screens fighting 1v1000, he did what he was told because that's the type of leader we have rather than saving those Americans. I would say a military officer is supposed to follow an order unless it is illegal, immoral, or unethical. But immoral and unethical are subjective. I would submit the Benghazi incident in the Afghanistan exit when we have military professionals that knew or should have known that it was going to lead to the disaster that it did. That's immoral or unethical in my opinion, but that's an academic debate. The problem mm-hmm. is the type of leader that we have in those positions don't have the character that we need because those people that did make a stand at some point in their career typically washed out because they got a bad eval and then it got them off track for promotion. Mm. And, you know, it's in the break, I was just telling uh, one of our producers that I personally, I expect the, my brother was a Marine and I, I learned a little bit about the Marine Corps when he, you know, went through that for the four years he was in. And I, I remember, you know, just taking away that these are honorable men, men and women. And in, in my opinion, I think I expect good men and women to do what good women, good women and men would do when faced with these decisions. And I think what you did was appropriate. And even though you, you broke a few eggs making the omelet, um, I think America needed to hear what you said because that was the right thing to say. And, and I think, you know, what you're saying, this subjective area where, you know, I guess it depends on who's looking at it and who's going to call it, you know, ethical or whatnot. Uh, this maybe needs to be better defined or people need to be willing to fall on their sword a little more. Uh, to do what's right. And it it seems like we're not fostering an environment where we do what's right as much as we're fostering an environment of do what you're told. And I get it. They're soldiers. But how do you think we fix a conundrum like that? Yeah, you're 100% right. It's crazy. All service members are willing to run towards the sound of guns, almost universally in in the military. But what they're not willing to do is risk their career or their retirement. So it's almost mm-hmm. two very different types of courage. And so no one is willing uh, to die, but not otherwise. Yeah, it's exactly right? right. Willing to die seems less scary than having your spouse think less of you because you got fired and you're just take a, mm-hmm. a hit to your pride because you didn't play by the rules. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely cultural. I'll say the United States military, their annual DOD budget, $850 billion. I think it even went up this year. The most countries' GDP isn't that large. We have the best training facilities. I mean, other countries come here to train. We have some of the most educated young talent in our coming through our pipelines. All roads of our problems lead back to leadership. And so that's what needs to be fixed. After World War One, there was a guy named Marshall who came in and cleaned up the general officer class. That's how someone like Eisenhower was able to ascend and be so successful. We need another Marshall-type leader to come in as the Secretary of Defense and really make some changes mm-hmm the cultural rot that is occurring in the military right now. All right, folks, we're on with uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller. 
Jr. He is the author of Crisis of Command, How We Lost Trust and Confidence in America's Generals and Politicians. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel, tell everybody how they can follow the work that you're doing, support what you're doing, and get a copy or two copies of the book. Yeah. I mean, the website's the easiest place. It's really like my landing page. It's got all my, my social media tied to it. Uh, but all my social media is at Stuart Scheller, but AuthenticAmericans.com. I throw events. So I'm down here in the Tampa area. I'm going to do three events for Memorial Day weekend. So I post some of my events on there. I've got a newsletter if people want to subscribe. But I would just go to the website and you can find everything through there. Also, for the book, if you want to get a signed copy of the book, it's through the website. Otherwise, you can buy it wherever you buy books, whether it's Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Outstanding. Well, sir, I want to... Uh, thank you for your service. You're obviously a tremendous American. I'm sorry that you went through what you went through, but I'm grateful that you did it. And uh, I want to thank you for being with us and wish you Godspeed with the book and everything you're doing. Thanks, Frank. Thanks for having me on. You bet. You bet. And uh, folks, we're going to continue with everything straight ahead with Derek Kinney. Derek Kinney is a uh, business growth expert. He's the CEO of Good Money Framework. And we're going to talk about why United States credit card debt is at a record high of almost $1 trillion. You don't want to miss that. That's coming up straight ahead. 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. Don't move a muscle. We're coming right back. Thank you, Rich, and thank you for everything. I know you very well, and I have I listen, but I have a lot of people that listen, and they love your show, and I appreciate it very much. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And uh, United States credit card debt is currently at a record high of a trillion bucks. That's right. Um, you'd think that we'd uh, gotten a little better, and uh, obviously we're not getting better. We're getting worse because inflation is just insane, and people are financing more and more of the increased cost of their lifestyle on credit cards and not necessarily paying them off like a charge card every month, but financing that debt at whatever rate their credit card is. The total credit card debt stood at $986 billion in the first quarter, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and their quarterly report on household debt and credit that just came out uh, about 10 days ago, showing a record 17% jump year over year. Not good. Not good. Now, the total remained flat from the fourth quarter's record of $986 billion. Still, the lack of a decline is unprecedented for this time of year. So here we are, just shy of a trillion dollars. And um, it lets me know that people are putting their money in the wrong place, right? You're not going to make any money paying off credit card debt and financing things with a credit card, but lo and behold, that's where we are. So I want to bring in a personal finance expert, Derek Kinney. He specializes in business growth, and he's the CEO of Good Money Framework. Derek Kinney, welcome. Rich, it is always great to be with you. Thanks for having me back. Yes, sir. My pleasure. So let's talk about this um, and slice it and dice it because you know, this is the stuff that you deal with every day. And I'm, I'm no uh, personal finance guru like you are, but I, I know enough to know you shouldn't be financing your inflation. <laughs> You're exactly right. And sometimes the simplest approach 
is the best one. And, you know, as we as we talk about this one trillion dollar number, I got to be honest, Rich, my heart goes out to so many hardworking men and women who, in many cases, aren't putting the luxurious vacation, these wanton expenses. They're simply trying to make ends meet, but the deck mm-hmm. is stacked against them. When I think about this economy and the leadership of the economy, and again, are there some bad spending habits going on here? Sure. But also I recognize that for many people right now, it's hard. And the people listening to the show recognize that they may feel like they work hard every day, but they're making no headway. They want to buy you know, the, the basketball lessons for their kids and baseball lessons and ballet lessons and things that families want to do for their kids, but they realize that they're stretched too thin. So right now, it's really a, a warning that says, look, the economy may not get better for a while, and if you are in debt, you've got to take some steps right now or it could really go from credit card debt to a credit card catastrophe, and I want to help avoid that. So how do we do it? Because I know I, I know a bunch of people who you know like to use certain credit cards because it's advantageous. Whether it's for airline miles or they want to, you know, they like to use their Amex and then pay it off at the end of the month, but they don't want to overdo it. But I know for me, when I started to see things creep up, I started to just use a little bit less of everything. Right? Um, like I stopped buying as much. Um, seafood and I went with a little bit more chicken. I, I always hold on to my steak, but, um, that's just me personally. (laughs) And, and, but I realized, you know, I had to make some cuts somewhere and, and I got that. And I also, you know, maybe I would eat out, but maybe not eat out at the, you know, expensive. And I don't really go to expensive places, but I would try to make it a cheaper place if I was eating out. And, uh, cause I do tend to eat out a lot, but, but my point is, I think I tried to, to minimize my expenses that way. Um, and, and that was the approach I took. But what else should people be doing? Well, the bottom line is that credit is a game, and I want to give people the rules of the game so they don't lose. And the way to mm-hmm. win is that if you use it for points or you pick the Amex or the Capital One card or whatever card, use it for the benefits of it, and you pay the card off the end of each month. If you do that, it's like you're cheating the system in a good way. And it's people don't do. We know that over half of Americans rich carry balances on their credit cards, and that's how you lose at the game of credit. So if you are faced with a decision right now, especially as hard as it may be, you want to ask yourself, is this purchase required or is it optional? Required or optional? And it's really that simple to really help pare down right now as we face some crunchy economic times. Do I really, really need this right now, or could I delay gratification and postpone it? And, and the key right now, and this is the cardinal rule, Rich, and if, if people don't hear anything else I talk about tonight, hear this. You want to make sure that you stay current on your credit cards, because if not, it will drive you into a ditch and it will crush you financially. And here's what that looks like. If you can, at least make the minimum payments on the credit cards. And if you feel like, as you talk to your wife, your partner, um, and you sense that, hey, we may not be able to make these payments, do not wait until the payment is due tomorrow to call. Call the credit card company immediately and say, look, we want to make sure that we're paying our bills on time. Can we work out a payment plan? And the credit card companies are happy to work out a payment plan because, Rich, you know this, they want to get paid. And when they recognize people who are proactively 
taking care of their own personal business and saying, look, things are tight, but we're committed to paying this. Sometimes they'll reduce the interest rate, sometimes but you need to be proactive on this. And bottom line, again, don't fall behind on your payments. And if you do, that could really crush your credit score. And when we're out of this, maybe a year or so from now, and you want to borrow again, now you're going to be stuck paying even higher interest rates because your score really got punched in the gut. All right. Uh, that's excellent advice. I want to continue the conversation with you, Derek Kinney, uh, into a couple of other things. because There's some more information out there about people that earn six figures uh, are living paycheck to paycheck, and that number is actually going up. So you got more people that are making over 100 grand a year, and they're living check to check. Makes you think, how are the people living with, with 100, less than 100 grand a year living? We're going to discuss that straight ahead. Folks, our guest is Derek Kinney. He's the um, CEO of Good Money Framework, and we're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're on with Derek Kinney. He's the CEO of Good Money Framework. Check them out at goodmoneyframework.com. And again, CNBC is reporting that six-figure income earners are now living paycheck to paycheck, and that number has gone up. 61% of Americans now say they're living paycheck to paycheck, according to this report. And aside from income, where you live is the most important factor in determining whether you are stretched too thin. And I realize that living on the East Coast, uh, I live four miles from Times Square on the Jersey side of the Hudson, thank God, uh, because if I lived on the New York side of the Hudson, I probably couldn't afford to live. Derek Kenny, uh, give me a, a sense of what type of advice you'd give to somebody who's making like most Americans between 40 and 60,000 a year and is just trying to keep up with rent. Yeah, Rich. And let me be a voice of reason to your listeners and say that when people hear you give that statistic, some people may say, well, I can't believe that the rich can't afford what they need to afford. Well, here's the reality that we know that expenses always tend to rise up and meet your level of income. So if you're making a million dollars a year, most people end up spending a million dollars a year. If you make 50000 a year, you end up spending about 50000 a year. And so if you can accept that that's just human nature, but what we're finding right now is, and you said this earlier, Rich, and I think you hit the nail on the head, you've got to make some smart decisions right now to gradually pull back. We know that most people are already living sort of paycheck to paycheck, but they know they already have a guaranteed paycheck. So it gives them a sense of comfort and peace. But now with job worries, especially in the tech sector and some other areas, people are nervous and worried and they realize, my gosh, they've been living sort of a very vulnerably without knowing it. So right now I would say, look, if you can build up some cash reserves, begin to just make those decisions around, is this purchase required or is it optional? And, and begin to make sure that you're staying current on your payments. That's the number one goal. And if you want to get really aggressive, Rich, I think you might like this. We find that in times of crunchy economic times like this, often looking back is when most businesses start. 
when many entrepreneurs recognize that the pain is so great, the, the worry of losing their job is so strong, they decide to start their own gig to take control of their financial situation. And right now may be a time to set a goal for some of your listeners and say, you know what? I'm going to make sure that I'm out of debt by a certain amount of time, and I'm going to launch mm-hmm. a business on the side to put myself in a position that I can control. Great, great piece of advice. And I'm just going to add to that, that in my early 20s, I had a business and I did finance some of my business expenses on my personal credit. And I learned that that was a horrible thing to do. <laughs> Absolutely horrible. Uh, it just it got me into into debt that I didn't want to be in. And I carried that debt for a while until I could pay it off. And it, it, I learned it was the wrong thing to do. And I needed to live within my means. And I've taken that lesson my whole life. And I've been debt free most of my adult life. Uh, other than, you know, home and the occasional car. But even that, I've tried to eliminate any car debt. And I, I think for the last six, almost seven years, no car debt, uh, which I loved. And, you know, I just recently got a, a different car, but I'm trying to pay that off fast to, to eliminate interest on that. What other things um, can the rest of us do to make sure we don't end up in a situation like this? Do we downsize? Do we move a little bit further outside of the city? I'm thinking of going down south to Florida because I realize the housing market here is just so crazy. And how do you upgrade in in a place like a suburb of New York City where, you know, I think a shack is 500K. So it's very difficult, you know, to to play in that margin. So I'm thinking I go down south, you could still get something for, for less than half a million dollars. Am I looking at it the wrong way or am I on the right track? No, I'm on the right track. And what I would say is that each person listening has their own track. And it's important to not realize that just because this works best in the case for Derek or for Rich means it's going to work exactly the same way for me and each of our listeners. What I would just say is ask yourself, what is at stake if you don't achieve your financial goals? If you continue to stay in credit card debt, How might that hurt you or your family financially? For example, I was talking to a woman recently. She said, Derek, I want to get out of debt because if I don't, I won't be able to send my daughter to college five years from now. And the the pain of the thought of that, of that if she didn't pay off her debt, that her daughter couldn't go to college and have a better life, absolutely crushed her so much. She said, I will not allow that to happen. And it served as a motivation for her to, A, stop spending recklessly on her credit cards, but to aggressively begin paying it down. And what I would ask each of your listeners, Rich, is this. If your financial situation right now is not exactly where you want it, it will probably be that exact same way the next day and the next day unless you choose to do something different. And what that looks like is either A – finding a way to add more value in your current job and asking your boss for a raise based on ways that you can increase sales, grow the business and reduce expenses, or starting a side gig, working part-time. In other words, the government bailouts are gone. They're not going to come bail you out of your credit card dilemma. And so this is just my tough Uncle Derek message to your listeners and say, look, if you want a better financial tomorrow, You've got to make some tough decisions today, but I believe the people that do will thank me years from now that this was that moment they said when it felt the crunchiest, they were the boldest and the most courageous financially. Outstanding. Derek Kenny, I want you to let everybody know how uh, they can keep up with the work that you're doing, how they could follow you, et cetera. 
Yeah, Rich. Um, I am uh, big on Instagram. Uh, you can follow me at Derek T. Kenny, D-E-R-R-I-C-K. The letter T is in Tom, Kenny, K-I-N-N-E-Y. We post daily content to help people make money, save money, and do more good with their money. And also you can follow us at uh, goodmoneyframework.com. But uh, Rich, has always love to be on your show, big fan of yours, and always fun to be with you. Likewise, Derek Kenny, thank you so much. Godspeed to you. And uh, enjoy uh, the, the, the upcoming uh, three-day weekend and memoriam of those that are fallen. And I thank you for being here. Godspeed, my friend. Thank you very much, Rich. Thank you. You bet. All right, folks, more to come straight ahead. Your calls and more, 833-482-5337. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. That's 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-4-VALDEZ with an S. You know, for so many Americans, the biggest investment they make in their lifetime is buying a home, right? Buying a home, selling a home it can, be, it can have its rewards, especially if you get it while you're young and sell it while you're older. Real estate returns are usually great, and it's probably one of the most solid investments out there. But just imagine... If you're, you know, an older person, you're maybe a widow or, you know, life changes for you. You you paid off your house, but you still have to pay taxes. You fall behind in your taxes and then your your town, your city, they go ahead and, and they levy the property. They put a lien on it and now they own it. They repossess it. There's a ba- uh, not a bankruptcy, a foreclosure and they sell it to get back the money they're owed. The problem is. What if you owe them 15 grand and they sell the house for 40? Who gets the 25 grand? Well, Geraldine Tyler challenged this practice of local governments keeping the profit when properties are seized uh, for failure to pay taxes and then sold. And the Supreme Court ruled in her favor in what they're calling equity theft. And this dispute made it all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And they ruled in favor of this 94-year-old woman Uh, over her claim that a Minnesota county violated the Constitution by keeping a $25,000 profit when it sold her home in a tax foreclosure sale. Listen, this goes back to what I was saying before. I believe we have to expect people, good people, to do the right thing. That's not the right thing. But, you know, interesting. It's a problem I didn't know even existed. I had never been in this situation before. The court concluded unanimously that Geraldine Tyler can pursue her argument that Hennepin County's decision, excuse me, decision to keep the surplus violated the takings clause of the United States Constitution's Fifth Amendment, which requires that governments pay compensation when property is seized. Makes sense to me. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in reference to a passage from the Bible that taxpayers are only required to pay the government that what it is owed, saying the taxpayer must render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but no more. Tyler's home in Hennepin County, which includes the city of Minneapolis, was seized because she owed $15,000 in taxes. The county sold the home for $40,000 and kept all the proceeds. Tyler's lawyers and the Pacific Legal Foundation say 
that this is not cool. So the conservative group, which often litigates property rights issues, calls to practice home equity theft. By the way, we've had lawyers from uh, Pacific Legal on our show, and uh, they're always excellent, always pursuing the, the truth and what's right. That's why I like bringing them on. This decision affirms that property rights are fundamental and don't depend solely on state law. Absolutely. State law shouldn't define property rights. Property rights are, are natural rights. The court's ruling makes clear that home equity theft is not only unjust, but unconstitutional. Fantastic. And that's uh, Christina Martin. She's an attorney with Pacific Legal. So the group said in a report last year that a dozen states regularly allow a government to take more than it's owed in taxes and that other states have laws that could permit the practice in some circumstances. The remaining states return the surplus proceeds when the seized properties are sold, which is how it should be, in my opinion. Uh, The six states, just to give you an idea of who they are, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Montana, Nebraska, and good old New Jersey, the Garden State, where I live, allow private investors to retain equity in properties once delinquent taxes are paid. The foundation says others allow the government to pocket the remaining equity when properties are sold. I don't think that makes any sense, but I'm glad she won, and I'm glad it's considered unconstitutional. I'm glad it's on the books, and I just want to remind you, We've got one more hour to go, and it's called Open Phone America. I expect you guys to call in and share your thoughts on everything that's going on. 833-482-5337 is the number, 833-4-VALDEZ. Give us a call. We're coming right back. It's America at Night with me, Rich Valdez. Don't move a muscle. the city that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, by the way, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media, and your calls are welcome here on America at Night, especially in the third hour where we do open phone America, any topic. um, I want to hear your thoughts on it, especially what we talked about tonight. Give us a call, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number, and you could always... um, Drop a comment online. I always take a look at those after the show, and uh, they're 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 both funny and you know um, and enlightening. There's some really 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 smart people out there that listen to this program, and I really appreciate hearing from all of you. So I want to go over a few things because <clears throat> there's a lot of news out here tonight, right? So the Oath Keepers founder was sentenced to 18 years uh, for a seditious conspiracy. Was convicted. Uh, for his role in the January 6th Capitol uh, riot. And that, that's uh, something that happened today. We'll get into that uh, in a moment. I also want to let you know that v- Volodymyr Zelensky uh, gave a surprise commencement speech via video stream to the graduates of Johns Hopkins University. 
Uh, so congratulations to all the graduates out there, by the way. I know there's a lot of people that are graduating. Uh, let's see. We've got $85 million in F-35 spare parts that are unaccounted for. Huh. Well, we might get into that in a little bit. And um, there's a lot more uh, that we um, we can talk about. Plus, Jill Biden had an interesting moment where she was giving a speech and paused and told the audience quite awkwardly, uh, you might want to clap here, <laughs> yeah, doing her own applause cue, which I thought was funny. And we are going to continue the, the conversation with you all across America. 833-4-VALDEZ, 833-4-VALDEZ. Let us uh, check in with our friends uh, in different parts of the country. We've got calls from Kansas, from Tennessee, from all over the country. Let's start with our buddy Neil in Bradford, uh, Bradford, Tennessee, on WCMT. Go right ahead, Neil. Hi, Rich. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you, sir. Good. I thought that was funny. You would ask everybody when Jeb Bush rang, he said, please clap. <laughs> that's what yeah. I thought about. <laughs> and that's exactly what she did. Yes. Rich, what I was calling about, I told your call screener that I do not think the ongoing battle between Governor DeSantis and Mr. Trump is good for the uh, Republican Party. It reminds me, I, they say history repeats itself. I was 13 years old in 1976 when uh, Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan had their battle royal for the Republican nomination, and uh, Governor Reagan barely lost the nomination to President Ford. And then, of course, that November, Mr. Ford lost to Jimmy Carter and blamed Reagan for the rest of the time, said that Reagan sat on his hands and didn't do anything to help him out. And I think history is going to repeat itself. I think that uh, given all the bad blood <clears throat> excuse me, between uh, Governor DeSantis and Mr. Trump, I think that they'll probably the loser until the winner. If you win, fine. I don't care. I'm just going to st- stand uh, this one on the sidelines. And if Trump is not the Republican nominee, I think he'll uh, probably maybe make a third-party run split the Republican vote down the middle just like Woodrow Will uh, I'm sorry, like William Howard Taft and Theodore Roosevelt did in nineteen twelve and Woodrow Wilson slid in there. But we'll have to wait and see it's an eternity between now and next November. Yeah, well, I, I don't agree. I think I think Trump uh should he not win and I think he has a really good shot at winning the nomination, but I think should he not win, I don't think that he would um pursue it any further. I I honestly think uh Trump's um, bravado is that of saying, look, I'm willing to give you some of the best years of my life where I'm rich and I'm I'm older and I could either play golf on these amazing courses that I build or I could try and save our country. And if you don't want me, then I don't want you. Right. <laughs> I really think that's how Trump would react. And I think he would just um, do what rich guys do. Right. Which is have a good time in life. Um, now, is in terms of um, the bloodbath that this may be. That's a part of our constitutional system that, um, whether we like it or not, I think we have to embrace. I think we have to embrace the idea that we can have a battle of ideas and that the best person will win. At least we want to hope that's the case. Now, I realize that the media plays a role and there's a lot of things at play. But ultimately, that it's the marketplace of ideas. I'm a free market guy. I believe that whoever has the best ideas and the best approach is going to be the winner. Uh, as long as we're playing a fair game. And I I don't think that it's going to be um, a uh, a situation where 
one side versus the other side is going to try and, um, you know, go and change laws about ballots and changing laws about how we issue absentee ballots and all of that craziness that we saw in the, in the general election in 2020. Uh, I don't think we're going to see the Republicans get to that level in the primary. So I think it's going to be a, a, a pretty clean fight and, um, and may the best man win. And I think they're, they're both terrific. Uh, I'm, I'm very partial to President Trump. I think he's, he's an excellent uh, um, politician. And yeah, I'm pretty sure he wouldn't even like being called a politician. But I think it's the fact that he's a businessman, that he's a uh, New Yorker in many ways, a very common sense kind of guy, a man of the people, a guy who still eats Big Macs. Uh, I think that that really helps him. And I think he has an amazing ability to connect with people. You know, if you ever listen to the interview that he did on this program uh, a couple of months ago, uh, I can tell you that I got a lot of feedback from that where people were like, you know, I had no idea he was so personable, had no idea he was such a level-headed, down-to-earth kind of guy because all I ever see is the clips of him in action, you know, going at it, tussling with folks in the media. So I think uh, this campaigning and the the Trump rallies and the one-on-one, even when he spars with members of the media, uh, I think all of that um, is helpful for both of them. And for them to get their message out. I don't know if I'm sold on 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 DeSantis's rollout. I think there's some commentary that I heard that he um, is putting his name out there so that he can be a front runner for 28. Um, but he didn't want to sit this out to become an afterthought. Uh, but then I think is DeSantis really the kind of guy that's going to run not to win? I don't think so. I think he's a winner and I think he wants to win and he sees an opportunity and he's going for it. So I think it's going to be a, a very. Uh, um, a really good fight. It's kind of like when you go, you, you like both guys in a boxing match, you know, I think it's like, that's a good fight. And hopefully they get 12 rounds. They'll go 12 rounds and it'll be a very clean decision, but I don't know. I don't know how, how that eventually turns out, but I am looking forward to it and I'm looking forward to the battle of ideas. And I'm, and I know that with that is going to come some mudslinging, uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that they'll, they'll keep it focused on the issues. And I think the American people will appreciate that as well. At least that that's my thought, and uh, I appreciate your call, Neil. Big shout-out to everybody in Bradford, Tennessee, on WCMT. Anyway, we're going to get to the rest of your calls straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Keep the calls coming. 833-482-5337. Up next, we're going to go uh, to the middle of the country, check in with our friends in Kansas and others that are calling in. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night. With Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. It's Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. 
All right, America, welcome back. And interestingly, a bunch of uh, 2023, uh, I should say class of 2023 students uh, showed up for their graduation and they were surprised when a screen went on to give a commencement address and it was none other than President Volodymyr Zelensky saying congratulations. You have a very beautiful school here in Johns Hopkins. That's right. Students at Johns Hopkins were uh, I guess some will say they were treated. Others will say they were they were mistreated <laughs> and they were robbed of a real speaker. But uh, the president of Ukraine was the uh, commencement speaker. He came um, on the airwaves via video screen. And here's what he had to say. First of all, graduates of the class 2023, congratulations on reaching this honorable Milestone Graduation Day at one of the world's greatest universities. And if some of you are a little bit worried about whether my speech may delay your long-awaited graduation moment, I want to assure you that I will also try to be brief. Not brief enough for me, Volodymyr, but thank you. Anyway, I want to do, give a real genuine shout out to everybody that's graduating this year, class of 2023, uh, whether you're in Johns Hopkins or anywhere else. Um, my little girl, she is class of 2023 in high school, and she's actually at her senior prom tonight, which is really exciting. She looked like a, a real princess, like, like an actual little doll. I thought she was so pretty. I'll actually put a, a photo of her on social media. I'll do it uh, in a little while, though. I haven't done it yet. And... Um, it was really nice, though, to see all of the other kids really dressed up when I dropped her off at the prom. And and uh, I know it's a nice time of year, and there's probably a lot of parents that are out running around. So if you're listening to the show because you're picking up your kid from the prom or taking them somewhere, uh, stay locked in here. Now, uh, speaking of graduations, and we're going to get to your calls. I see that we have calls. We're going to get to you. I promise. I just have to share this news with you. 833-482-5337, by the way, is the number if you want to chime in. There's a Texas high school that had to move its graduation because only five students were reportedly eligible to graduate. Now, this is not a fun story for me to discuss. This is horrible. According to uh, CBS News, 28 of 33 seniors at Marlin High School did not meet graduation requirements and their attendance records uh, and grades are to blame. The, the district had affirmed its commitment to providing necessary resources and support to students, and the new graduation date is seen as a testament to their commitment. That's what the Marlin Independent School District said in a press release. The district said, research has shown that regular school attendance is a powerful predictor of student. I got to tell you, I can't read the rest of this. I really can't. I don't care what you do, where you do it. If you're going to blame Whatever that percentage is, 28 of 33, I don't know. That's got to be somewhere north of 80%, 90%. Um, if you're going to blame 90% of your students, I think every teacher should lose their job. Every principal should lose their job. 84% of the students fail, and you're going to blame 84% of the students? Come on. You've got to be going to tell me, well, they don't come to school. You're doing something wrong. You're doing something wrong if people don't come to school. And guess what? If nobody shows up at your school, then you don't need a school there. You got to put the school somewhere else. That makes no sense in the world to me. I don't care if you want to call and yell at me. I, I, I was on a school board for almost a decade. I'm going back on that school board, by the way, I start next month. And I can tell you, we would shut that school down in a heartbeat. There's almost a thousand students. We have a, a grammar school, a middle school, and a high school. And if, if 
84 percent of the students failed there, it, A, would never get to that. And B, people would get fired all along the way because that's a problem. That is a, a serious problem. And I'm not going to blame 84% of the parents and 84% of the students when you have college-educated educators there. I mean, it's absolutely insane that this is, you know, studies show that regular school attendance is a powerful predictor. No, duh. No, duh. I'm, I'm, I'm just not getting into that. Uh, so that's Nakisha Edwards, uh, the chief academic officer there. I say to Nakisha Edwards, come on this program and let's have a conversation. Because if you're going to blame 84% of your students, there's uh, so many places that we have to start this discussion and that's not the place. Uh, but she required a mandatory meeting of parents of seniors. Listen, if your senior class, 84% of them aren't graduating, we've got a problem, Houston. Anyway, let's get to your calls. Cause I know you guys want to weigh in on that and everything else. Uh, let us go to Don. Don is in Wichita, Kansas on KQAM. Don, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hey, Rich. Good to speak with you. Yes, sir. I appreciate, I appreciate all that you're doing and how you bring it every night. Oh, thank you. Um, I would. Uh, I, I want to talk about the J six sentences. Sure. How can the oath? How can the oath keepers get a fair shake if there's so many parts of the story that aren't being told? You don't. You don't yeah. get a fair shake. Yeah. Uh, do they just rule? certain things out of bounds so they don't have to discuss them in these trials? I'm not sure what they ruled in or out, but I can tell you that the whole thing, I mean, there were informants inside of all of these organizations from the, the um, Proud Boys to the Oath Keepers to uh, I think one other one that was out there was very active. And, and, and the whole thing to me, there was no way they could win. How about that? Right? Anybody who, yeah. who, who is a good hearted person that showed up to do the right thing, that was part of uh, the front line of this, they're losers, right? I'm not insulting them. I'm saying they're, they're losing in this battle. There is no way they could win. Now, this is not a defense of the Oath Keepers, nor is it an indictment of them, but it's definitely just matter-of-factly saying there was no way they could win. They were embedded in there. They had the, I think the president was working with the FBI or wasn't, or the guy who turned him into the, it, it was such a convoluted story. And I'd read it a few times, but I realized, you know what? There was no way these guys were going to get a fair shake. They were demonized in the media. And even if they were demons, nobody was giving the other side of the story. And uh, it, it, to me, it was open and shut. This is what they wanted. They wanted their plow of flesh and they were going to get it. And nobody was going to stop them from getting it because they knew if you just hang these guys out to dry and say that you had some actual insurrectionists, actual, you know, guilty parties of of the crime of seditious conspiracy, then, you know, it a it helps the Democrats narrative. This is Washington, D.C. How are you going to get a trial in Washington, D.C. to be fair? I think we've discussed that with people that were former federal prosecutors that will tell you, good luck. It's not going to happen. It's an overwhelmingly one-sided uh, jury pool. So, I mean, this was a losing situation, and that's just a sad truth. Um, I, I wish it wasn't the case, but that is the case. And uh, whether it's the, the Department of Justice and their FBI investigators or not, I, I think whoever would have been, when they get to that jury, I think it was a done deal. There was no way they were going to allow those people to walk away, in my opinion, Don. Sadly, I think that's what it is. I think the judges should have recused themselves, and uh, FBI's role should be exposed. But I agree with you. That's the way it is. Okay, yep. thanks. 
You bet, Don. Thanks for the call. Hope to hear from you again soon. Let's continue. Let's go to Alabama. Let's see. Alabama. We've got Sandra. She's in Dothan, Alabama on WDBT. Sandra, welcome. You're on with Rich Valdez. Hey, good evening. I wanted to make a comment. You had made a comment earlier about that you had, if I understood you right, that you had thought that um, President Trump could win the nomination. And he, he might win that nomination, but I don't think he could ever win the presidency again. Just what this man just said now about January 6th. Every time somebody is prosecuted and goes to jail, that's another hit at uh, Trump. But what I'd like to see happen is I'd like to see Senator Kennedy from uh, Louisiana. Oh, he's terrific. Sandra, the music means they're kicking both of us out of here until we come back in three minutes. But I agree. John Kennedy from Louisiana, he is a hoot. I love him, and I think he'd be great. Don't go anywhere. It's Rich Valdez. We're coming right back. red states and blue states, and I found that the common values that unite us are deeper than our divisions. And um, I thought you might clap for that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, that is uh, the first lady of the United States, Dr. Jill Biden. And uh, obviously she had a, a Jeb Bush, please clap kind of moment when uh, her applause line fell totally flat at an event in Washington. And uh, this was uh, for the Ronald Reagan Institute, and uh, it just didn't fly right. So sorry, Joe Biden, you know, please clap. I thought you'd clap for that. I thought that was funny. Gave me a chuckle. And um, it's it's interesting how when things don't go your way, I mean, you got to be able to recover. And I think she did recover uh, well, you know, it it did. I laughed once she told me to clap. (laughs) So it it worked, I guess, uh, in some degree, but uh, still funny. Nonetheless, I want to continue with your calls. Let's, uh, where are we going here? We've got a few different places to go. We've got West Virginia, Oregon, Dallas, Texas, calls from all over the country. Love to speak with everybody. Let us go to Michael. He's in Pendleton, Oregon on KUMA. Michael, go right ahead. Yes. Uh, good evening, Rich. Hey, uh, great show as usual. Good to talk to you again. Um, Thank you. And Likewise. it was, uh, yes, I, you had a lot of good comments. Of course, we've been talking a lot, surprise, about politics, of course. And uh, just kind of putting in my two cents, I, I really appreciate sure. you letting all the callers uh, express their opinions, their ideas. Uh, you're really great, like uh, Jimbo Hannon was with that, too. Thank you. Um, really and Larry, Larry King before him. Um, but, yes, uh, Rich, you know, I, was gonna, I really appreciate your input, respect your opinions. Um, you know, the of the current Republican field, of course, uh, Governor DeSantis just entered. Um, but, you know, I was I want to say I've been very impressed I've been a supporter of President Trump and my family has. 
Uh, I still feel he's clearly the front runner, the favorite in for my money um, uh, with the Republican Party. I believe he can win the general election. Um, but uh, a person I'm really uh, impressed with uh, is uh, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. Cause, uh, and I think you, you probably agree, uh, Rich. Talk about an American success story. Uh, I look at America as a land of opportunity. Um, you know, you can be, take yourself as far as your ability will allow that. And talk about his story starting out in poverty and hardship and what he's accomplished. Um, I just have so much respect uh, for that man. And I, I think he's very capable. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I really uh, admire what he's accomplished in his life. You know, Michael, I, I agree with you. I think I think everybody, honestly, I, I think Vivek Ramaswamy, I think he's a very impressive guy. He's, he's, he's a great caliber of, of candidate. Uh, I think Nikki Haley, as much as people disagree with some of her policy decisions and whatnot, uh, even political decisions, I think she uh, is a very viable, capable person. Uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, Donald Trump, Larry Elder. Uh, Asa Hutchinson, I don't really uh, know, and I'm not really impressed, to be honest with you. But the the ones I've mentioned, I think, are all uh, terrific, terrific candidates and would would make good presidents, I think, uh, from what I can see, from what I know. But I do believe that in the current field, without having seen any debates, it seems to me, uh, from just my assessment of Trump's uh, term in office, I think he's standing head and shoulders above them in terms of policy decisions and honestly, in terms of current polling. Now, that may tighten up, I'm sure, as you know, the primaries heat up. Um, I do believe that, you know, Trump uh, will he can be victorious in a primary. I also believe that he can be victorious in a general. Um, I do believe he's going to have a ton of opposition. I just think the difference is I think there's less opposition now than there was before. You know, and just look at the current CNN town hall as an example. Again, back in 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 2020, it was difficult to um to get to get him on and he was president, right? <laughs> uh but he got on because mm-hmm. he was president. Now he's not president and they're asking him to come on and he's you know, he's making conditions and saying, "Look, I'm only coming if we're doing this, you know, making it more fair." So I think, um, you know, when I go to my favorite Cuban place locally here to get my cafe con leche every morning, I, I bump into people. And, you know, some of them know that I have this show at night and they want to talk to me about that. And I try never to do this for free. Honestly, <laughs> I try to, you know, I'm like, you, you want to hear my thoughts? Listen to the show. But every now and again, they'll, you know, they'll try to bait me into something and I might get it, you know, into a superficial conversation. And I, the things I usually do more listening than anything. And I say, you know. I, um, what are your thoughts? And they'll tell me and they'll say, you know what? Somebody said to me the other day, I, uh, did you know, I can't believe this, but did you know that Donald Trump didn't even know what was going on with the Russia thing when they were saying that he was a Russian agent? He didn't even know what was going on, according to that new report that the special counsel put out. And I said, yeah, I knew that when it was happening. I knew it when they said it was happening. But again, uh, many of us are in the know. And we realized how they perpetuated these 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 falsehoods on Donald Trump. Uh, so I think more and more, and these are not just apolitical, uninterested people. No, these are people that would bother me because I was supportive of Trump. Uh, so I think when you have detractors of Trump that are saying, "Wow, you know what? He got a really raw deal." Um, I think we're going to see those numbers continue to grow. 
Uh, of course, there's attractive candidates like Tim Scott and Ron DeSantis and others. So I think there's going to be options. And I think there's nothing better than for the American people, the American electorate, than having such options. Because to me, that's what really solidifies this, right, is is us. Just imagine, you know, for, for the most part, there's a good amount of conservatives in that in that the, that group of people I mentioned. You're going to have all these great ideas about putting America first and smaller government and lower and less taxes, uh, you know, being debated heavily for months. And I think that can't do anything but help America. You know, those that don't believe to say, well, you know what, that's actually a pretty good point. So, I mean, that's my take on that, um, Michael. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't think um, I wouldn't rule out a Trump Scott ticket in any way because I think he was the only person that joined the race where Trump said, well, welcome, Tim Scott. Good luck to you. They had a good relationship when he was president. And um, I think Tim Scott is not in the position where he can dominate the field like DeSantis could in terms of getting media and having that type of national presence. But I do think uh, kind of like Mike Pence, he, he's in that category where he's effective. He's an impressive guy, and he could probably do a really, really good job of of being a running mate. Just my thoughts. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that could be a great ticket, uh, Rich. And yeah, I agree. Uh, he's very capable, um, has so many great qualities, and I think he would complement uh, President Trump very well. Yeah. Well, thank you, Michael. I appreciate the call and your kind words. And quite frankly, I like both of them, but I think both of them need to take a tougher stance on Mitch McConnell. I can't stand that turtle. And hopefully they'll get a little tougher on him, both Trump and uh, Rick Scott. And I realize you got to work with these people, so you have to maintain some uh, level of decorum and collegiality. But, um, you know, I would like for them both to act like talk radio guys and just go after him. Uh, but they're 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 behaving like, you know, like politicians. And um and I don't mean that insulting. I mean that in there's a collegiality amongst officials that they have to maintain, and uh, they're doing it. But I just wish they'd take a little bit more of a swipe at him because we can't let him off the hook. Anyway, the rest of your calls and more are coming up straight ahead. I'm Rich Valdez. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833 482 Senator Chuck Schumer, who, again, I, uh, I I used to see regularly as a little kid growing up in Brooklyn. I was riding my bike, and he always thought it was uh, important to stop and mess up my hair. And, hey, kid, how you doing? You know, that type of thing. Um, and say hello to my mother. Hello, Louisa. How are you? You know, he was a real glad-handing retail politician. And that's why so many people liked him in New York, because, you know, puts on a good show. But then we see what he's doing now that he has some power in Washington. Oh, my goodness. And you'd think, you know, is he taking the same brain vitamins as Joe Biden? Because the things he says, listen to this tweet he puts out a little while ago. 
Um, of course, there's breaking news from earlier today, you know, uh, that the Supreme Court cut back the power of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to regulate the nation's wetlands and waterways and uh, saying that they didn't have this authority to, to impose such regulations. And, um, you know, environmentalists see that as a setback for the agency and their authority to combat pollution, you know, as if they're like the climate police rather than the EPA. Uh, Chuck Schumer writes, and again, this went to the Supreme Court and was decided by all nine justices. Well, what does Chuck Schumer say? Well, he says this MAGA Supreme Court is continuing to erode our country's environmental laws. Make no mistake, this ruling will mean more polluted water and more destruction of wetlands. We'll keep fighting to protect our waters. The problem is, this court is not a MAGA Supreme Court. And it wasn't a 5-4-5-3 decision. It was a unanimous decision where every justice voted for this. So how does he get off saying that a MAGA Supreme Court that includes Katanji Brown Jackson, Sonia Sotomayor, Anthony, no, he's gone, right? Um, the um, Elena Kagan. I mean, how, how do you call them MAGA? The one woman won't even define what a woman is. There's no way she's MAGA. <laughs> I mean, it, the, the things that Chuck Schumer says are just absolutely insane. Um, let us go to Rick, Dallas, Texas, KLIF. Go right ahead. Yes, sir, Rich. I'm still laughing about your quip about the brain vitamins. That was hilarious. Uh, <laughs> I, I want to tell you something and uh, two quick points. Uh, first off, I love your show. You oh, are my you. all-time favorite. You and actually you're one or two. You and your old boss, Mark Levin. Y'all are the my great one. Favorites. The great well, thank one. you. Uh, my points are this. I don't know if you're aware of this. I just learned of it yesterday. I agree with everything, every point you've said about Trump. I did not know this till yesterday, but it explains a lot. It turns out that the Republican establishment, never Trumpers, cabal, primarily Jeb Bush and Karl Rove, solicited and convinced DeSantis to run. They're the ones that put that big $80 million pack thing, primarily them, together for him. He was not going to run. Trump was going to probably pick him as his VP, and he would have been set up for an eight years. But they convinced him to do this, and that explains why Trump felt so betrayed and attacked DeSantis the way. I never could understand that. That's why. And well, that's an interesting take. And, and uh, just to say, I, I, I think that, that could be a reality. I know that DeSantis is going to become the de facto never Trump candidate. So if you're the Lincoln Project, they're going to dump all their money into DeSantis unless he says he doesn't want it because they're not going to give their money to Trump. And if, let's say, Nikki Haley becomes the never Trump candidate, I don't see that going far for her. I also don't see um, Senator Scott going very far. And, and maybe I'll be wrong and happy surprise. Um, but ultimately... Everybody that hates Trump, Democrats included, George Soros included, you name it, they're going to figure out a way to prop up DeSantis because he's the official never Trump guy with the best shot. So that, that they're thinking if we can get this guy uh, and then they'll figure out, you know, hey, we'll, we'll work on beating him later. You know, I also think a, a good part of this, uh, Rick, is this. I think when you're a guy like Trump, he's a real estate guy. You know, real estate is territory that makes him territorial in many ways. 
And I think, you know, he thinks, look, I helped Ron DeSantis uh, to, to, to run in Florida and he was behind. And when I endorsed him, he, he won. And I think old school guys like Trump, there's an expectation of loyalty. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong with that expectation, by the way. I think it's, it's a good thing, but it's, it's lost in, in, in modern times. And I think so he, he looks at this as, you know, a betrayal in many ways. Uh, but then you add insult to injury with the fact that you're bringing up, which may or, or may not be the case. But I, I have no reason to doubt that, uh, which is that it's your your starkest, uh, your, your starkest enemies on the never Trump side, the establishment of the Republican Party, that he's literally that's he's been attacking them since day one. Right. The establishment and creating this new um uh, populist Republican Party known as MAGA. So ultimately, I think the America First crowd is definitely way more zealous and very intelligent, and and they're they're willing to to be out there and let their voice be heard. And it's a shame that this is going the way it does. But yeah, it makes a lot of sense uh, what you've said so far with respect to that. The other part of it is, I think this again, territorial real estate mogul. You know, it's kind of like, look, I'm buying up the whole block. And then somebody goes and buys the last building that's for sale on that building that you wanted to buy. It's like, hold on. What are you doing? You're just you're trying to jam me up. So you're trying to jam me up. All right. You know what? I'm going to start taking shots at you. I'm not going to stand here and and, you know, pretend to put my tail between my legs. That's not Trump. He's a fighter. He's not he's not that guy that says, let us have diplomacy. He's not that guy. Right. He's like, no, you want to fight? I'm bringing you the fight. You want to do it? Let's go. And that's what he's doing. And he's bringing it to DeSantis. And DeSantis, to his credit, has not engaged. He's been kind of like, all right, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Because I don't I, I don't think anybody wins in a battle against Trump. Right. I think he's proven that the FBI, Biden, Obama, you name it. These people have tried to destroy him time and time again. And he proves to be victorious time and time again, including indicting him, embarrassing him, or at least trying to. And then he raises a ton of money and becomes even more popular and goes up in the polls. <laughs> you figure that one out, Rick. Anyway, I've got to take a quick pause right here. But a big shout out to everybody listening in Dallas on KLIF. Amazing station. Big shout out to you guys there. Thank you so much for the call and your kind words are coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. And he's breaking it down. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. I love that piano. I got to tell you. Anyway, welcome back, everybody. It's Rich Valdez. And um, we're going to continue with your calls. Um, let's continue. Where are we going? We're going to Port Angeles, Washington, KGAL, out of Oregon. Go right ahead, Tom. Hello, Rich. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, yes, sir. I made it a habit uh, when we were talking about uh, the FBI and how got, how corrupt, uh, corrupted it had had, be, had been getting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I made I I made a habit of of saying, look, there's there's lots and lots of good FBI guys. And what was going wrong was just uh, the, Bad leadership. The, the leadership. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I must have done that six or seven times. Uh, Do you regret it now? Was what? What? Do you regret that now? Regret it? No, I still feel the same way. Good. I do too. Uh, Let me tell you a quick story. And I might've shared this yesterday, uh, but I'll share it again because I think it's worthy of repetition. My brother, John, John Valdez is a, uh, is a federal agent and works very closely. He's with department of Homeland security, works very closely with uh, the FBI uh, because he works out of uh, one of the airports in New York. And, and uh, they were listeners to my show out of New York. Very, very good people. And they would call in, and uh, I remember at one point them saying, look, you know, um, we're ashamed of the direction of this agency. They give their names, but um, I knew they were those guys from the FBI in New York. And it was just um, remarkable, remarkable to hear that coming from the good guys in the FBI. And it stinks that there's bad guys out there, and it stinks even more when they perpetuate these types of things, whether whatever it is. And again, the movie White Boy Rick comes to mind. If you haven't seen it, watch the movie. Nothing about politics, everything about the FBI. Tom, thanks for the call. Take care. Good night. God bless. We're going to do it all again tomorrow if God lets us do it. Hasta la próxima. I'm Rich Valdez. The Ed Milet Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed Milet Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen.